Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. think about brands and the way that they work with people the the opportunity to have a one-to-many relationship between you know a brand and millions of followers in a social context and constantly engage with them in two-way conversations not only provides the opportunity to get much deeper insights but it also does in some sense create a much more meaningful and, and a real relationship in a way that's that's never been possible before Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. Now, if you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with transformational coach and trainer Skofre Nana Yor Yaboa and with Patrick Laverne of the Sales Champ Academy, then do go listen in. Check them out. Well worth it. But stay here. Listen to today's conversation first. I'm really excited to have on the InnovaBuzz podcast today as my guest, Gareth Chandler, the founder and CEO of The Evolved Group, a human insights company that helps enterprises identify opportunities and optimizes experiences. In a career spanning 25 years, Gareth has led major innovation projects, including developing the Evolved Human Listening Platform, which uses AI to engage meaningfully with humans. His successful career in market research has equipped him with a deep appreciation of human behavior and he's passionate about using technology to enhance human experiences. In our conversation today, Gareth talked to me about the limitations of traditional surveys. We talked about asking better and deeper more insightful questions via AI-powered conversations. And we talked about their transition from a research company to a software company. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Gareth Chandler. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast today from Melbourne in Australia, guest who's in the same time zone as me for a change, Gareth Chandler, who's the CEO of the Evolved Group, a human insights agency focused on understanding what clients want and what drives their decisions. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, Gareth. It's a real privilege to have you as my guest. Thank you, Jürgen. Uh, good to be here. Michael Haynes, who was our guest on episode 471 of the Innova Buzz podcast, suggested that we have a conversation with you, Gareth, and he also introduced us. So big hello to Michael. 
Yeah, Michael's been a, a great collaborator over the journey and I'm, uh, I'm uh, grateful for his recommendation. Now, you're probably the first and only guest so far that I've had that we share two things in common. We both have a science degree from Monash University <laughs> and we both have a business degree from the Melbourne Business School. So <laughs> I thought, oh, that's a unique combination. I, I doubt whether I've had anyone on the show that has shared that with me yet. That's uh, very unusual. <laughs> All right. Now, the Evolve Group, um, I'm fascinated because you talk about being a human insights company and that human, meaningful human engagement is really the engine of growth and success. So I'm really looking forward to exploring that with you in some more detail and particularly because you actually do a lot of that gathering of insights through artificial intelligence. So it's it's one of those areas where I'm passionate about as well as using technology in a way that builds human connection. Um, but before we start talking about all those things, what's the impact you're making in the world today, Gareth? Yeah, uh, surveys have been around for a really long time, Jürgen, and they're kind of uh, one of those things that we all take for granted. And we take them for granted, not necessarily in a positive way, but rather as something that we do under supplements uh, when we want to get a point across or we've got something to say and we believe whilst we've done over 35 million surveys on our technology platform that there's a better way for people to engage with the brands that they love through through conversational AI. So our mission in life and the mission of our organisation is to, to make the, the process of, of how brands engage with people a more positive process and one that, that people actually enjoy doing. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So instead of asking the respondents to fill out a survey, it's just going to be 10 minutes of your time and then you kind of spend about 20 minutes on you and you've got no idea where you are in the survey in terms of how much more, how much more is there to go. Um, you're looking for creating a much more engaging experience, one that might be fun for the person giving the feedback as well as gaining insights for the company. Yeah, that's right. And we, we use the term meaningful. We want people to provide meaningful feedback that, that's guided by what they want to say rather than necessarily prescriptive in terms of what the company thinks it wants to hear, but maybe is being a little bit um, preemptive in what's actually important. Mm. Mm. So how did you get onto this journey of of customer insights, gathering customer insights, and then bringing the artificial intelligence aspect into that? It's been a bit of a journey, actually, to be honest. Uh, and I started off as a researcher going back to our degrees, uh, science degree with a major in psychology kind of prepared me fairly well for a career in market research, which is one of those careers that people tend to fall into rather than you know, say, I'm going to set out to be a market researcher and you know, that's what you do. But hmm. one, it's actually a great career and it gives you exposure to many different businesses and different like, ways of working and different technologies and so forth. And, um, the whole art and science of asking questions and understanding what the answers mean and how to interpret that into um, insights that businesses can use to you know, drive acquisition and grow their customer bases and so forth. We had a customer that came to us uh, about 10 years ago and wanted to basically speed up the whole process of, of doing that and getting answers to the problems and sticking it on the desktop of the people that ran the business. And that led me to form a partnership with, with my now business partner, Shane. Um, and develop a whole lot of technologies to do that. And then a sequence of steps that led to us where we are now and conversational AI being our thing and, and using that to change how organizations engage with people. Mm. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's interesting sort of taking that psychology study and psychology uh, know-how and, and applying it to the market research and what drives people to make the decisions they do when they're engaging with companies. So how, um, how does the conversational AI process you use differ from the traditional traditional surveys or traditional interactions? When, when you do, if you think about what you're doing when completing a traditional survey, you click on a link, takes you to a set of questions which uh, someone might say, overall, how do you rate your experience or would you recommend this brand to someone else? And they might ask you some questions such as, I rate the following things, uh, just the price, the level of service, the politeness of the person you spoke to. There's lots of different iterations of that. Um, when, when you provide that, that type of feedback, there's a set of assumptions involved from, on the part of the, the person that wrote that questionnaire that they know what you want. Hmm. And there's a, there's an assumption around the fact that those desires, even if they get that right, are going to stay the same. And that's really not true in the sense that everybody's different and there's a vast array of different experiences that organizations deliver over time uh, to different people and it's almost impossible to capture every nuance of, of experiences that you want to understand to get better at what you do in a, you know, that best five to six minute questionnaire. This conversational AI technology allows us to have good models that basically engage with people in natural language conversations that it might have four or five thousand terms behind it in different topics that we can engage with using AI. So for example, rather than saying rate all these things, we might say, Jürgen, how would you rate, you know, your experience with brand A? And you might say, oh, it was great. And then the first question is simply, you know, why was it great? And then you might say, well, you know, the person I spoke to is really polite, they're really helpful. Now, in a traditional survey, even if you have an open-ended question, that's where it stops. And you can imagine that some poor person behind the scenes is reading that saying, I need to know why it was helpful so that I can mm. pass it on to all the other agents so they can also be helpful. Well, our technology then says, oh, thank you. Can you explain to me why they were helpful? And then they might say, oh, well, the person was able to ask some good questions about the product need and they made a great recommendation. And then we might say, well, what was the product you're after? So that level of um, probing, it's like a, it fans out and it's like what we call a reverse chatbot. So it's not like a normal chatbot that's here guiding you into a set of outcomes. This is inviting you to express yourself in any way you want. Um, and then hooked up with a whole lot of analytics we've developed, delivers the client, um, the ability to dynamically listen to people, pick up new things that are coming in because it's not making that assumption of the well-being static. Um, and be able to deliver very specific, very usable feedback to organisations that they can actually do something with um, and pass over to people to change you know, way processes work or find a new white space for a product. Uh, there's a lot of different applications that you can use it for. Mm, that's fascinating. So it's it's kind of like you're actually talking with a person who's who's listening to what you're saying and, and so there's no judgment. Like you said, the traditional survey, it says rate your experience. Um, from one to ten, and often I find those ones I'm, half the time I'm putting in not applicable into some of the questions. And mm. like you say, it's kind of like it's made an assumption that that's important to me, but uh, most of the times it's not. So it's kind of like speaking with a person who then um, digs deeper and says, "Oh, that's interesting. Your answer. I'm curious. I want to know more about that." And is that? an accurate way of putting it? It is, yeah, and because it, it does allows us to do that because 
we were able to develop these models that have you know so many different things that they can recognize that you might say and then to link that up with a question and to be able to ask the question grammatically correctly and in a format that elicits that additional piece of information that in turn elicits at a quantitative scale so once we start doing analytics on it the actual drivers of, of that outcome so you can still provide an overall score from one to ten or zero to ten or whatever about how you feel but the name of the, the game is to understand why you give that rating so you can start mm. to find why some people are dissatisfied why some people are satisfied and that human nature of the, of the conversation is a good a good way of putting it because really what you want to have is a level of interaction where just as we're talking now and i'm listening to you and you're listening to me i cognize what you're saying i process it and I come back with hopefully a good question or vice versa. You might come back with a good question to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we then use that to gain a shared understanding of each other in a way that um, that not only helps us understand each other to mutual benefit, but also creates, and this is sort of the big idea, and a relationship. Um, and, you know, when you think about brands and the way that they work with people, the, the opportunity to have a, a one-to-many relationship between you know, a, a brand um, and millions of, of followers in a social context and constantly engage with them in two-way conversations not only provides the opportunity to get much deeper insights, but it also does, in some sense, create a much more meaningful and, and, um, and a real relationship in a way that's, that's never been possible before. So brands as people, brands that can converse, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. that There's a couple of things that come to mind on on that, though. I mean, obviously, it's a pretty complex um, software that drives all this. The uh, and I'm curious to know how you kind of how you got that off the ground. But one of the things that I mean that's the conversational part. The other part, of course, and you alluded to it, is the analytics and the back end. What what does the brand or the business do with all that information they have? How um, how does the AI or the software then process all that? And deliver some meaningful insights that can be used to structure a a response or a, a strategy that that says, "Hey, these are the these are the inputs we're getting from from our surveys, if you call them that, the, the conversations that the bots having, and these are the insights, that, and therefore this is the strategy. This these are the things we should be doing." I think there's two questions there which I'll, I'll answer in turn. The first one is, um, how do we know what the person's saying to be able to respond and, you know, what the topics are? And the second one is, how do we analyze it? And actually, the two are related. Mm-hmm. And the way that it basically works is, um, there's key terms and there's different, uh, topics that you can preempt that people will ask. Uh, and the whole idea of creating one of these models is to have some level of uh, subject expertise and what you're talking about. Now, the great thing about being a researcher, we've got stacks of expertise on and why people are satisfied or dissatisfied or whether they like some brands or not or what they say when they write a product. So we can build one of these models in a couple of hours, which basically sets out all the different topics that you want to talk about. And then uh, it's, it looks a bit like a chatbot on the front end and it, it sort of works in a similar way, but the architecture is quite different, that when you respond, it parses the text and what I mean by that is it breaks it down. So if I said, I went to the supermarket and I wanted to buy ice cream, but they didn't have it. I got to the cashier and the person was very helpful. I can split that into different parts. I wanted to buy ice cream. That's one bit. They didn't have it. That's the second bit. I spoke to someone. That's the third bit. 
And then the last bit is they help me get it. So once I've split that comment up into those different areas, each one of those is a topic that I might be interested in. So for example, what brand of ice cream did I want that they didn't have? Then I can go back to the client and have a look at my ranging and say, actually, we need to stock more Ben and Jerry's or something. Um, the second part being around what was the experience of the customer when they couldn't find that ice cream, which was they went and spoke to someone that helped us. So I can assess whether or not there was a response at that service interaction that allowed that individual to be able to resolve that that particular episode, if we call it that, that uh, resulted in them actually finding a product, which means there was no revenue leakage. And then the last bit about the person was able to help them direct them to the brand they wanted, which might then allude to the fact that the problem might not be the lack of product. It might be finding it within the shelf and direction within the store. That's probably a sort of a good end to end example of that. Now, the analytics part of it is the obverse of how you ask the question. Once you parse the comment, you understand the topics, you can start looking at saying what percentage of people mention that. When they mention it, is it a positive and negative experience in using things like sentiment analysis? You could say which type of people or which products have issues, for example, with finding that product. So there's a very long list of different things you can do with text data, but it's so rich. You can talk about topics, sentiments, emotion. Uh, you can analyze it in lots of different ways. But when you hook it up to the questions that you ask, that's where the magic really happens because you can also apply deep learning to the data. So in other words, maybe you see a new terminology for the first time that's not in your model. By parsing the text and understanding the subject of the sentence, you can say, I oh, know you're talking about a thing. You can still construct a response around that thing that makes sense to the respondent and ask about it. But then the deep learning can say, oh, that thing's not in my model, I'm going to add it to it. And then it's going to work out which branch in those topics it belongs in, or if it's a new topic I haven't seen before. So it's kind of complex, but the whole system mm. itself is kind of a different way of thinking about human interactions. But it, it's actually in some ways quite analogous to how the mind works as well. Yeah, yeah. What I love about that, though, is it like there's a very clear framework and and i'm guessing that designing this up front is probably the key to its success but i like that there's a very clear framework and that allows then that analysis to happen which is almost a, a very uh, objective analysis because again it's done by uh, machines it's not done by people who said well you know so and so said this and what did he really mean and there's a a very subjective interpretation of that conversation. One of the one of the challenges for market researchers in industry over the last you know 20, 30 years has been dealing with text. It's complex and it's it's got a lot of nuances to it. And, and English as a language, let alone before you start talking about other languages, has idiom and it has rules that make no sense. And there's lots of packages out there from you know the big technology companies as well as specialist companies to do text analytics and a lot of it doesn't work very well. It works to a point, but it's hard to get it to do exactly what you want. And you know, the way we've developed this this technology sort of overcomes some of those challenges uh, because these models allow you to, you know, have a, a view of, of what you want to talk about, but they do improve over time and learn from what people are saying. And again, once you get into that format as data, there's just so many different things that you can do with it and so much you can learn from it. Um, in terms of how people are interacting with your product or your service experiences, everything else, and you need to keep going back to it. Hmm. Or you can feed in other types of data that's not even a survey once you've got your model set up, for example, complaint data, um, and put that into the system, start to analyze that and see what topics people are talking about and you know, what are the really positive things in terms of resolution or negative things. So it's a, it really is a whole new ballgame. Yeah, yeah. Or even I'm thinking... You know, you mentioned chatbot before. I mean, the traditional use of a chatbot is somebody comes onto the website 
and the chatbot pops up and says, what can I help you with? How can I direct you? It's kind of like the um, the person at the front of a department store when, you know, in the old days when you used to go to Myers in Melbourne, the department store, and there'd be somebody standing in front saying, you know, where, where would you like to go? And you'd say, oh, menswear or sports sports department, and they'd point you in the right direction, and they might even tell you something about what was on special that particular day. Um, so the the website equivalent of that is is how I see chatbots today, although most of them don't work as well as that. Uh, but you could use your technology for something like that to improve those. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's what I would classify as an adjacency. So, it, you know, we, we work in a $90 billion industry, which is insights, and we're very focused on the application of the technology, which is kind of novel because it hasn't been done before to our industry, but it doesn't mean we can't branch out into some of those adjacencies. And it's ironically, one of the things we've had to deal with is the somewhat negative connotations that chatbots have because traditionally they haven't worked well. And they're not really listening to you. All they're trying to do is pre-count a set of responses to guide you to a finite set of outcomes, but that's actually not the way our platform works. It actually has a you know almost an infinite number of outcomes and it will keep asking questions until it really understands what you want. And often the analogy we use is to say, if you're talking to a normal chatbot, it'll try to, if you say, I want to buy a car, it'll try to direct you to the right car. We want to know why you want to buy the car in the first place, which then helps us to ask much deeper questions like you're interested in safety or mileage or you know, any number of different things. So we're, we're looking at it from a very different perspective. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm I'm curious as to what the experience is of the, the people on the respondent end of the chat box because, you know, you talk about the human experience and my I haven't been on any of these surveys with, with um, the kind of conversational AI you talk about. But I have been on phone calls, for example, where there's a, a voice that says, what are you looking for? So it's an open question. Mm. And then you give you give an answer and then it says, oh, did you want to speak to service or did you want to speak to uh, your customer service or did you want to speak to sales or um, did you need information about your account? And I said, no, no, I didn't say any of those. <laughs> and, and you have this frustrating interaction with, um, you know, that that you've given a response that's not in their database so then they just keep feeding you back the responses that are in the database and you don't get anywhere with it so what's the what's the human experience for your conversational ai um, when yeah hopefully quite different to that and one of one of the arts of in in research is a whole field which is qualitative research which is you know again talking to people and it's the art mm. of asking questions and closed-ended questions and open-ended questions and there is a definite uh, way of doing that, which in some ways is harder than a standard chatbot, in some ways easier, because we've got some rules built into the system that, that allow you to determine around those topics that I mentioned before about how much information someone's provided. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to extract information using questioning, and if you pass a threshold, we're not going to say, they're going to you know, tell me about you know, why you want to buy the car when you've already clearly told us that. But if you said, I want to buy a car, it'll recognize that it's below the threshold and say, oh, that's great. Why do you want to buy a car? Now, I can ask reflection, I can probe, I can prompt, I can introduce things you may not have mentioned. So a big part of the technology is rules to be able to guide um, responses that aren't annoying and are not repetitive. Probably my favorite example of that, actually, because sometimes it does do unexpected things. And we were testing the technology during the COVID-19 outbreak here a couple of years ago. And... 
we're just asking people about their experiences with COVID and said, you know, talk to me on the chatbot. We made sure we had a little thing that said, sometimes I get things wrong. Forgive me. That's how I learned to ask about people, testing some yeah. stuff. And there was one, one guy talking to it and it's, it's text-based interaction. We can do voice, but most of what we do is text. And he said, um, I'm bored. I'm stuck at home with a wife and the kids. And the chatbot said, tell me about the wife. And they were telling me about your wife. And he said, oh, my wife's a nagger. <laughs> and then said, tell me about why you are no, 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 it went on and on. It was, and it was actually pretty interesting because there was a whole lot of stuff that came out of that that was actually quite useful about learning about people's experiences stuck at home and you know how it changed the relationship between them and their significant others that sometimes maybe a person would be not brave enough to ask the question. You know, chatbots can go where people feel threatened. So, and it's kind of fun in that regard. This guy clearly enjoyed it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a funny example. Um, and and what what I thought as you were explaining that is that in giving the responses to something like that, um, and particularly feeling comfortable knowing it's not actually a person on the other end, so I can maybe reveal some more of myself or my feelings here that that I might um, have a barrier to do when it's a real person. Uh, you actually learn something about yourself in giving those responses. Yeah, that can lead to a whole lot of really deep places, Jürgen. And I mean, I guess one of them is that, again, one of the challenges as a qualitative researcher uh, in facing opposite a person, either in a focus group or, you know, which is sort of eight people in a room with a mirror behind you. You know, some of your listeners might have done that before or you might have been in one of those where you have a group discussion or a one-on-one interview where there's an interview talking to someone is that there's an implicit judgment involved. So I say something, then you listen to me, but... When I look at you, listen to me, I'm also saying, have I said what that individual thought I was going to say, or maybe I've gone outside of, you know, the bounds of what's socially acceptable, or maybe I'm trying to normalize my responses to be perceived that I'm not someone who's unusual or weird. And that, that really makes it challenging for, you know, human, human traditional methods and particularly in sensitive subject matters to, to get to the realities about actually what goes on inside of all our various heads. Uh, what we've learned with this technology is that what we're actually doing is helping people have a conversation with themselves and removing that judgment. And people will experience, um, will, will say things to the conversational agent when they're anonymous that you, you would never get in a face-to-face discussion mm. because they don't care. They happen to express themselves. And, and an analog of that, that happened a couple of years ago in the election when a lot of people voted for Donald Trump that didn't want to admit that they would do that. So when they did all the robo polling in the US, they found the results were far more accurate than telephone human-based polling because people that otherwise wouldn't admit they voted for Trump were quite happy to press one and yes, I voted for Trump knowing that no one's ever going to know. And in some ways, it's the same thing with these sorts of technologies and that whole idea about you know, what is in fact the conversation between a, a machine and a human and, and what's it asking and what's, what is actually going on for the human do they know what do they forget that they're talking to something that's not real or do they get into a, a bit of an imaginary space like when you're at the cinema and you get fully involved in watching a movie and you forget that it's yeah. not real? Um, these are all new areas and quite exciting, you know, psychologically, but also technology wise. And we're entering, I think, a really, really fascinating period over the next 10 or 20 years where the whole rule book around cognizance and um, engagement and dialogue and what it means to be human is quite likely to change. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, this is one of the one of the most exciting applications of AI that I've come across. And and as you say, it changes the whole game in terms of understanding 
human thought patterns and human behavior. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, like what we're trying to get here is information to help a business have better service, have better relationships with their customers. And at the core of those relationships with the customers is human behavior. So it's kind of, you know, it's doing the full circle, isn't it? It's always at the bottom is human behavior, always. <laughs> and it's always about people's emotions and perceptions and beliefs and, you know, the experiences they have, which is why I love what I do, because, you know, getting insights into those interactions is what every organization, I believe, has to master in order to create a better product, a better service and and deliver uh, against needs, wants and, and desires and frustrations and beat the next company down the road. It's what always ends up in that space. Yeah. All right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. So you, um, you've you really undergone strong growth. I mean, you talked about starting off as a research organization and I think it was 10 years and, and you've grown to um, a global organization and this transition from what is a research company to what's essentially a software company has provided a, a fair bit of challenge in, in addition to the challenges of rapid growth. So tell us about some of those challenges and what you've done to address them. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think probably I'm lucky in that you know, my business partner is a, a developer and you know, he's got decades and decades of experience going right back to the start of the internet, actually, with his own company in that mm. space. And over the journey that we've gone together, he's learned a lot about market research and I've learned a lot about web development. And <laughs> probably the biggest challenge in all of this has been culturally aligning the two worlds of, you know, product development, um, technology and, and consulting, because oftentimes they meet, they march to the, the beat of a different drum. And um, it's probably different when you're starting up, and I can't, I don't speak from experience, but if you're starting up a product company from scratch, you know, it's a kind of different vibe there. You're getting a whole bunch of people in there around a problem and you don't have any sort of legacy issues. But we've, we've been, a, we're more of a sort of scale up phase where we do have different teams and they've got very, very different um, mindsets around, you know, things like, you know, what, the, what the focus of the business is, how you work with timelines, um, the type of experience you want to have and bringing them together has been a massive challenge. And, and to make that transition has, has been the biggest challenge we've had to do over that period. Hmm. How do you, so how do you address the, um, culture, making sure that the culture of the organization is is what you want it to be across those teams that have very different sort of areas of focus or are coming from a very different um, mindset if you like it never it never stops and i think a lot of it is walking in another person's shoes and helping people understand that as an organization we succeed through the the efforts and the endeavors of both groups um, and that it's the danger is that someone comes to work and sits down and works on what they look at and you know end-to-end -end process involves consultants working with clients, writing reports, doing questionnaires, developing discussions of the type we talked about before and understanding what it all means and going back and working with the customers. But that relies in turn upon the work that our product and development guys do to build the software and the capabilities that allow us to achieve that. And neither of those groups can survive without the other because as a consultant you can't build these wonderful things with qualitative insights at scale without the tools the other guys built and they can't build great tools without understanding how they're going to be used by the consultants which opens up huge opportunities for us to you know offer the same types of technology to organizations that do the same consulting um, 
So what we've always tried to do, Jürgen, is to get people to think about um, well, one team, different roles, and try to inhabit other people's um, experiences within the organisation, whether that's you know sitting in on meetings or whether it's you know riding shotgun on different processes, uh, whether it's to be able to you know work in collaborative virtual teams and, and keeping things very flat. There's different ways of going about that, some of which work better than others. Mm. Yeah, I love I love the idea of um, riding shotgun on on particular processes, just watching what what the other people do and try to understand their workflow and work processes and and where their frustrations are and often that will uncover things oh i could fix that bit for you because i know how to do that yeah definitely and you know that's that's actually something we've, we've thought of fairly recently and it really doesn't ever stop because you know, it is true that you get someone a hammer and all the world's a nail and you kind of have to keep reinforcing and reiterating all these things lest you know you sort of grab that hammer and start whacking everything but um yeah, that's to me. You can say, and it, you know, people listen. But if they do something, it actually becomes experiential, and it's something that they can much more fully appreciate. Um, and the challenge to all of this, of course, is time, because everybody's got a job mm-hmm. that to do. We ask them to do a bunch of things. They sit down and they do it, and that's where they can create those sort of thought uh, chambers around things and, and start to create boundaries and divisions. And I've got to say, COVID's made that harder. Um, when you're sitting in a group together in a room and people can get up and have a chat with someone and say, hey, you know, why did you want it that way? Or can I can I ask you to do that in a slightly different way? It makes life a lot easier. But the reality is that, uh, you know, when we're all working remotely and um, jumping on a call is not quite the same vibe as, as having that kind of um, ability to, to ad-lib and, and sort of be a little bit more um, informal and uh, a little bit more sort of reactionary in the way that people interact. So it's, been, it's definitely been challenging. Hmm. So are most of your team based in Melbourne? We've got about 70 people in Melbourne, maybe maybe late high 60s. We've got nine in the States. Um, we've got a couple in New Zealand and uh, in Australia. Um, actually, not quite true. I think it might be about high 60s in Melbourne and three or four people in New South Wales. So we're kind of a build over the place. Hmm. So you have had experience in the past of working across geographical boundaries where obviously you've had to use things like virtual meetings and that at least you kind of weren't new to that way of working now you just had to bring it into everybody yeah yeah definitely um you know it's the modern world isn't it i mean it's just the way things work and um it, it the big stretch has been um doing it consistently all the time and then um until you know even just in melbourne as you, as you appreciate it's been only come back to some semblance of normality in the last couple of weeks uh, so yeah we definitely had some experience of it but it didn't Let's just say I don't think it was a linear extrapolation to the experience of COVID nineteen <laughs> yeah. and working under those restrictions. What What were some of the things you did to kind of keep the those cultural aspects and keep that that dynamic and the interactions and the cooperation going during the time when everybody was working from home? Uh, we we tried everything. Uh, some of which it worked really well, actually. Some not so well. But we've got, for example, one um, initiative that we continue to run, which is uh, everybody gets assigned to a random group of three or four people, and the person whose name appears randomly at the top of that three or four people has to lead a discussion on a random topic. And they get on a call and say, you know, what's your favourite book, or you know, tell me about the last movie you went to, or uh, you know, what's the one thing you're really good at that you you know other people might not know. 
And we found that that really does create that sort of social element and, and reminds people that they're working with people, not not yeah. you know, faces on a screen that are impersonal. Um, we've done, I think, what every other organisation has done and had, you know, kind of Friday night trivia, online trivia competitions and games and <laughs> you name it. It's the, the full uh, blamange of different methods to try to get people to connect. Hmm. Yes, well, there's no no shortage of um, ideas there, and I love the I love the kind of discussion groups, the mini discussion groups. I've actually done some of that with larger networks, and then taken people into breakout rooms with those kind of questions, and then brought them back to share in the bigger groups. So um, that certainly works really well as a networking tool. Um, it might be interesting to try something like that in this environment although as you say for since the last couple of weeks um we've enjoyed uh, much more normality in melbourne in victoria so hopefully you'll be able to get back to having people in the office again yeah definitely and actually probably the other one that we did that worked exceptionally well was the step challenge because it, it really galvanized people around a goal so we again allocated people to teams and uh people had to try to get as many steps as they could within a week we ran that over four weeks and uh, that that worked really really well. Except there was one guy in the in, in Canada who was involved who played golf three or four times a week, and that was sort of probably uh, <laughs> unbalanced things a little bit. But uh, yeah. people love getting around a challenge and you know, trying to work together to, to get a bit of competition into the whole thing was good. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And you can do that these days with all these fitness devices, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been fabulous, Gareth. Um, it's sort of really. A great um, application, I think, of artificial intelligence that actually brings in that human element and and uses the machine or the computer or the software as a learning tool and as a tool that can accelerate getting really deep insights into what the conversations are that are actually happening and um, much better way than the traditional surveys. So I really like it. I think it's a good point now, though, to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round, the same five questions I ask of every guest. Um, the idea is that you'll share some tips from your experience that will inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. Are you all set? Yeah, ready to go. All right. What's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? Have the confidence to set a goal and agree to achieve it without knowing how you're going to do it. Hmm. That's interesting. So jump off the cliff and then figure out uh, what is it? Um, yeah, jump out of the airplane and then figure out how to open the parachute on the way down or something pretty, like that. Pretty much. And you can, the interesting thing about that definition is in some ways I've always felt it's a good definition of, of entrepreneurism because it means mm. that you become very good at that last 10% you can't do and you can develop processes around saying, well, you know, I can always get that 90% bit in house, but that invention bit around the 10% is what drives growth in the company and capability with, you know, with what we do. So uh, you've got to be a bit brave. You've got to believe in yourself and your team. Mm. Yeah, that's right. It's a, sort of knowing knowing yourself and, and also understanding the team and, and having that confidence in other people as well. Yeah, definitely. And you know, maybe one in every 20 times you can't figure it out as well, and you also yeah. have to accept that. and. Again, risk aversion, I think, is probably the biggest uh, barrier to, for a lot of people to actually, you know, going out there and having that sort of growth mindset because it, it's not pleasant when things don't work out. But, you know, that whole sort of something I've noticed, particularly working with our colleagues in the States and working in America, is this sort of 
comfort with with knowing that sometimes things don't work and you just get back in there and get back on a horse and keep going. That's <laughs> what you're going to mm. do. Yeah. All right. Well, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Uh, with reference to my co-author, Michael Haynes, listen to the customer. So <laughs> there's nothing, no better way to understand the problem you're solving for and the solution to it than actually carefully and methodically listening to what people had to say as a basis of their experiences. Mm, yeah, and of course, the your entire work and the conversational AI we've been talking about is is targeted towards doing that and, and doing it in a way that the insights you get from listening to them is actually really valuable. Absolutely, that was my subtle on-sell for the technology. <laughs> yeah, great. All right. So apart from your own tools, what's what's a resource that you use most often? Um, well, it's probably more an idea, actually, and it does go back a little bit towards listening, but it's also dog fooding. And dog fooding is one of my favourite terminologies, and some people laugh at me for using that as a, as a term, but yeah, basically eating your own dog food. And uh, mm -hmm. because, again, we've got a consultant team and we've also got a product development and technology team, we have to use our own products. And if you can't use it yourself and make it work, <laughs> don't inflict it on you as someone else. Um, and I think there's another one, maybe more geared around sort of technology, which is I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of an old school kind of guy in the sense that I grew up, I, I'm old enough to remember when email came in and I've mm -hmm. tried to use every single productivity tool, every single different methodology to manage my to-do list. And funnily enough, I found that email is the best way to do it, which is completely contradictory to what most people say. But when you combine email with the Eisenhower method, which is, you know, basically uh, urgency coupled with importance it's a beautiful thing hmm. yes i've actually got a version of the eisenhower method implemented in into my email so that um, 95 percent of the email ends up in whatever quadrant it is that i don't pay any attention to really so <laughs> exactly. they're the ones that that take up a lot of time and don't add any value and and so i have an inbox and i get somebody else to sort it for me as well so I have an inbox that usually is only about 10 emails and they're the ones that I have to deal with. Um, but I haven't, I, I still, I still take things out of those, those high value quadrants and put them into my to-do list. <laughs> Maybe we ended up with the same, same method and the same approach. Yeah, yeah. We both went to Monash University and did science. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's an influence there. <laughs> All right, now what's the best way to keep a project on track? Uh, set clear expectations at the start of the project and mm. scope, scope, scope. And in my experience where most projects run off track is when there's a change of scope and where the expectations of the various people that are involved in delivering that project are not in the same place. Um, as long as you have that sense of clarity around where you want to end up, lots of things can happen, but you never sort of end up in a in the long grass or in a, the place you where you don't want to go yeah just setting the expectations up front i think is such a big thing and then one thing that many people ignore they kind of develop a bit of a project plan and it's not clear what the outcomes are supposed to be and what expectations and where people have to do certain things and then you allow that to evolve over time and of course everybody we've talked about the 
human behavior, everybody develops different interpretations of it as things go on. So it's managing scope becomes virtually impossible. It is. And one of the challenging parts about that as well is that in some ways, what I've just said is contradictory to the whole concept of agile and Mm. the ability to be able to be agile and be able to change scope as you go. And, um, it's, Agile is an interesting methodology and it, it, it's, you know, obviously transformed a lot, way, a lot of the ways that organizations operate managerially, but also how they develop products. But it has still has to be defined within scope. So maybe sometimes those boundaries can be a little bit wider and you can operate within those boundaries at the start of the project, but that comes back to expectations. Um, you know, yeah. there's always a bit of scope, but if you go too wide, then things invariably fall apart. Well, the way I see it with Agile is that if, you know, if there's clear expectations up front, everybody's aligned, the scope's defined, everybody has a clear understanding of the scope, then if you take the agile philosophy and say, hey, something's changed or the environment's changed or we've hit a hurdle here, so we need to pivot real quickly, we're all starting at the same spot. So whatever pivot or change that you make there and you, you keep doing the, okay, the expectations get reset here, and the direction gets changed a little bit, the scope gets modified a little bit, but the starting point of our understanding is the same. So when we move the goalposts at that point, then everybody's still on the same page. Yeah, I couldn't have stated it better than myself. Hmm. Whereas if we're starting at different places, then it sort of just gets scrambled even more. Yeah. All right, what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? This is probably an obvious one, but be really, really good at a limited number of things. Know what you're really good at and keep repeating it again and again and again and avoid the temptation to be moderately good at a lot of different things. Mm. Yeah, and I think that there's certainly a school of thought, and I can't remember, one of the one of the um, famous book authors that just published another book recently, and I don't, I don't recall now who it was, but... They basically said that, you know, just get really good at whatever it is you do and you're passionate about and just become so good that, um, that, you know, you're the obvious person to talk to about that particular topic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's a, there's a bit of a, a writer on that one, Jurgen, which is around the idea that, that well, I'm a fervent believer in the idea of the competency based view of the business. So just because you're defining what you're really, really good at in one way, going back to what we talked about regarding chatbots and adjacencies, it doesn't mean you can't do lots of different things. It mm. just means that you have to know how what you're good at can be extrapolated and monetized and commercialized in different areas to solve different problems. And I think the problem starts when you try to be good at too many different things and you don't understand how those things relate to each other and you know you take on too much stuff and, and you never achieve anything worthwhile. But you know, once you understand the you know, what it is you're good at, then you can start to think of how that thing actually applies to different problems and how you can use it to solve other people's problems. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's it's kind of looking at, okay, I've chosen this thing, I want to get really good at this thing. So then you sort of dig down into the detail because you've got to cover all the detail, you've got to be on top of all the detail to be the expert in that area. But then once, once you get to that point, you can sort of, go back up to helicopter view and say, well, you know, I'm really good at this. Where else can I apply that? So it's, and, and also bringing other people on board that have complementary skills that broaden the horizon as well. 
Yeah, and that drives growth because you know once you know what you're good at, and you know what your competencies are, then you know then you've got those adjacencies and ways to create new ways to earn income. Um, aside from simply doing you know getting more and more customers on board, you can start to solve different problems. So it's a different mindset, but you know it's something I really believe in and it's been good for us. Mm, great. All right. Well, thanks, Gareth. This has been fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you? Maybe even reach out to say thanks for what you've shared and also learn about the Evolved Group. Uh, best place to go is our website, www.theevolvedgroup.com. Uh, we've got all the uh, descriptions about our products and our services and all the different things that we do. All right. And we'll have a link to those to that in the show notes so people can click straight through. So do you have some parting advice today, Gareth, as we wrap it up? No, I think you actually said it yourself just a short time ago. <laughs> know what you love, be passionate about it, and, and don't leave anything on the table. And you know, I think be brave and, and, and just be passionate about what you do. And I think I'm fortunate enough to work with a bunch of people that feel that way. And we feed off each other's energy and um, come to work with a real sense of purpose. So uh, passion is everything. Mm. Yeah. And and when you get to that stage and when you really enjoy what you're doing, it's it's an amazing feeling, isn't it? You're sort of inspired and uh, energetic all the time. doesn't feel like work anymore. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, finally, Gareth, who else should I get on this show and why? Um, our US president, uh, Rick Edinburgh, is a really fascinating guy. He had his own company that he created called Stephen, uh, which I think he ended up selling to one of the big management consulting companies. I think Rick has, knows more about innovation and has done more stuff uh, than I, uh, he's probably forgotten more about that stuff than I know. Uh, and he's incredibly um, interesting person to talk to. So I'd thoroughly recommend having a chat with Rick. All right. Well, we'll get an introduction to Rick and reach out to him to begin that conversation. Thanks. And thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us so generously. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said earlier, I think this is one of those applications of automation and software that really brings the human element back into it and, and allows people to have those human interactions and takes time, uh, frees up their time by using technology in a way that's still very human and, and gives a lot of insights into how we can better serve our customers for those people doing the, doing the research. Well, thank so you. Thanks yeah. a lot. All the best for the future and let's stay in touch. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that really engaging and informative conversation with Gareth and took something away from his episode. So I invite you, why don't you, listening now, reflect on the questions you ask of your customers in the many conversations you have critical questions that give you a deeper understanding and a deeper connection with your dream customers. As you think of them, write down three of those questions and then consider how those questions can be reframed to give you even deeper insights and information. Indeed, lead to more meaningful conversations with your customers. Gareth's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Gareth Chandler. That is G-A-R-R-E-T-H-C-H-A-N-D-L-E-R. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Gareth Chandler. 
You'll also find contact information for getting in touch with Gareth there, as well as links to the Evolve Group website, to Gareth's social media pages and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation. Now, if you've listened this far into the show, I've got a challenge for you. If you've loved this conversation and think it'd be useful to one other person, be brave enough to share that conversation with that one other person. And my guess is in the almost 500 other episodes that we've published right up to now, there's at least one in there that's equally as valuable to you as this episode. So either pick your favourite number or take a 30-second glance through the past episodes and between now and the next episode, listen to one more and then write me a note on LinkedIn sharing which episode you picked and why and, most importantly, what your biggest takeaway was. Gareth suggested that we have a conversation with Rick Edinburgh, US President of the Evolved Group, on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So, Rick, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Gareth Chandler. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode so that we can get to know you and why you listen. Also, it will help us make the podcast even better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz to pick your preferred platform. And you can follow the show by going to followthepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain into how we put together this show, go to innovabuzz.co forward slash flywheel, where you can access a free gift my team and I made for you, a short audio program that walks you through the entire InnovaBuzz flywheel. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.